This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Today's show, Workers' Comp Matters, is sponsored by Plaintiff Support Services, providing financial services for plaintiffs, the gold standard in plaintiff funding. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen in to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan S. Pierce. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts. My firm is Alan S. Pierce and Associates, where we concentrate in representing injured workers and their families in workers' compensation, social security disability, and related claims. You know, if you've listened to any of our other programs, we're committed to helping people who have been injured at work. What we want to talk about on today's program is the ethical considerations with regard to workers' compensation cases. What does that really mean? Conflict of interest issues, privacy issues, and so forth. Joining me today is an attorney in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Tom Domer. Tom is a national expert in workers' compensation law. He also is a law professor who has researched and written extensively on a wide range of ethics issues for lawyers challenged with workers' compensation cases at Marquette Law School and the University of Wisconsin School for Workers' Compensation. Tom is the chair of the ATLA Workers' Compensation Section and serves on the Workplace Injury Litigation Group National Board of Directors, and we welcome Tom. Thanks for taking the time for us today on the Legal Talk Network. Glad to be here, Alan. Tom, let's start first with competency issues. Um, where does that fit into uh, ethical considerations in handling workers' compensation claims? Well, there are a lot of lawyers out there that uh, believe that they can handle workers' compensation claims as kind of an adjunct part of their uh, practice. Um, you know, they do trust in the states, and they may do some personal injury matters, and they may do some general law. And the competency requirement is uh, that you have to have the legal knowledge, skill, and thoroughness and preparation reasonably necessary to represent somebody in workers' comp. And uh, as you know well, this uh, this system in workers' comp uh, varies state by state. It's it's very precise and uh, has got a is replete with all these uh, special regulations, and it it uh, it may be difficult to satisfy the competency requirement uh, if you don't, quote, specialize in workers' comp, or at least have a substantial portion of your practice uh, be in workers' compensation. And I'm sure you will agree with me that in addition to a knowledge of workers' compensation, what are the other areas of the law that somebody who's going to handle a comp case has to know? Well, there are many. Um, You've you can't be a workers' comp lawyer without knowing a little bit about um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, specifically um, your state's uh, provisions under any state handicap uh, or employment discrimination laws. Uh, most employers, when they're trying to resolve a workers' comp claim, if there are some peripheral claims uh, involving the ADA or the state equal rights claims will want to resolve all of those claims. Certainly, it's very difficult for you to resolve um, portions of those claims without knowing anything about them. Um, There are Family and Medical Leave Act claims 
both federal and state provisions that you must be familiar with uh, because the workers' comp claim often sort of runs concurrently with the FMLA claims. Uh, age discrimination claims is another portion a lot of times because of or after, in any case, after the uh, injury occurs, somebody gets canned. And if they're an older worker, there may be an uh, age discrimination claim. Certainly any kind of safety claims have to be uh, familiar with uh, OSHA uh, and the LMRA, Labor Management Relations Act. Uh, You may have some ERISA claims involving uh, health insurance uh, reimbursement claims. One of the biggest, certainly, is Social Security law and the way that your particular state may offset benefits that you receive from Social Security with those that you receive in workers' comp. In a lot of circumstances, it simply uh, may be that your pursuit of a workers' compensation claim is going to um, is, is not going to benefit the worker at all because of an offset for Social Security. Yeah. In fact, that, that brings to mind the fact that there are also what's known as third-party claims where an injured worker uh, uh, is injured because somebody was negligent that can be sued, and there are oftentimes conflict of interest issues that arise. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Tom. Well, in a, third, in a third-party recovery um, in most states, and, and certainly mine and yours in Wisconsin, Massachusetts, um, provisions that you cannot sue your employer – that was the deal that was cut you know, almost a century ago um, in order to uh, essentially guarantee workers' comp, although the guarantee is, uh, as we found out, um, you know, somewhat of a, of a broken promise. But um, anybody else other than the employer represents a third party. Most states have third-party recovery provisions, which indicates in, in the main that the workers' comp carrier gets paid back what they've paid out of the proceeds of a third-party settlement. Um, when, uh, in, in many cases, an attorney may represent the individual in a workers' comp claim and also try and proceed against a third party, that attorney certainly has to know and understand the provisions of the, of the statute requiring uh, a payback formula uh, for that injured worker. Um, and I've, I've inherited cases where the third-party attorney, the personal injury attorney, simply has ignored or hasn't known about um, that payback potential. And in our state, that that third-party resolution is void if the workers' compensation insurance carrier does not participate. In fact, it can cut the other way, can it? In in your state, perhaps you could uh, tell us, does the insurance company have the right to bring the action is it Absolutely. a race? Is it a race to the courthouse? Is there a yeah, time they, frame? They, the insurance company has the right to bring uh, their claim against a potential third party if they think that somebody else is out there that's responsible that can put money back in the workers' comp insurance company's pockets. And what obligation uh, do they have to the injured worker for the excess money over and above what they paid? Um, they. There's a formula which essentially, uh, um, as you can imagine, uh, was drafted by an attorney. So the by attorneys in the legislature, so the attorneys get uh, their fees first. One-third of the balance goes to the injured worker. And then um, of the net that's remaining, um, the if the insurance company has paid uh, more than that net, the insurance company gets paid back all the remaining money. And if there is, uh, if the injured worker recovers more money than the insurance company has paid, 
then uh, the workers' comp insurance company gets their chunk, and any balance remains as something called a cushion. And the cushion um, uh, is in the workers' bank account until such time as the workers' comp carrier expends additional either medical or time loss payments, and then they get paid, paid out of the cushion. Um, that, that certainly can be a problem if the third party is resolved without the participation of the workers' comp insurance carrier. You know, another issue that comes up from time to time is our obligation as attorneys for injured workers to share all the information we have our, in our file with either the insurance company or, more importantly, uh, the workers' compensation tribunal, whether it be a commission or department. Yeah, Tell us a little bit about issues that arise that's about... A, that's a, that is a tough one, and it's a very difficult one for the attorney to, uh, um, to explain to the injured worker. In, in most states, um, there is a waiver of the patient, um, the patient-physician privilege. Uh, quite simply, it means if you have a workers' comp claim, your claim's an open book, and any uh, any part of your medical record that is arguably relevant to the current workers' compensation claim uh, becomes an open record. It has to be produced, um, and sometimes it's very difficult for a worker to to uh, understand that a, you know, a 20-year-old um, you know, condition that they may have for asthma or bronchitis could be involved in a much later came, claim for uh, silicosis or asbestosis. But in, you know, if it's arguably related to the lung, the insurance carrier has the right to that information. In fact, I find that's of particular importance in the growing area of psychiatric disability claims. Oh. I've had clients come in uh, with an emotional trauma at work, and in the course of the interview, um, I always ask if there's a prior history of psychological or psychiatric treatment, and if there is, I have to tell them right at the outset that those records, despite the belief that the psychotherapist-patient privilege attaches, that's now an open book, and I've had clients refuse to go forward just because of that. Have you found that also? Yeah, and it's a very anxiety-producing moment for, um, for the injured worker. Uh, but in, in many cases, um, the residual effect of a physical injury is going to be some sort of emotional trauma, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder or some anxiety disorder. Or pain, chronic or, pain. Or simply, yeah, simply pain. And, and uh, what, what many of the, quote, independent medical physicians you know, may uh, describe as somatoform disorder. Um, and in, in those kinds of, a, of claims, um, it's, it's again very difficult to convince an injured worker that their, you know, the, the family therapy that they had to go through for the divorce, in some way, um, uh, has to be revealed in a, uh, after their their back injury at work. Um, but in fact, uh, sometimes the judge may uh, take that matter and, and simply look at it in camera without having anybody else look at it and say, well, this may or may not be relevant. But I think, again, arguably, the carrier's got the right to it uh, if, it's, if it's reasonably related to the work injury and or the treatment that follows from the work injury. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, a situation, and I think we've all had it happen at least once in our career, when either we send out or hopefully receive a communication from opposing counsel it wasn't meant for us. This is this is an interesting notion, Alan, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it, it has to do with the uh, the Ethics 2000 Commission that the uh, American Bar Association has 
uh, has just uh, completed and the reports that they made. Um, you and I have been doing this, oh, these many years, um, and it, there used to be a, um, a kind of a, a gentle person's agreement where if you, for example, uh, and, and we'll, we'll give you the we'll give you the employer's hat here. If you um, had sent a letter to your client, the employer, and inadvertently, um, either by fax or now because we have uh, email um, with such prevalence, um, just inadvertently click the wrong contact button. Say you know Domer might be next to the you know Domino company, and you and you click it and send it to me, and in it you have inadvertently said, uh, we think that the value of this claim, not inadvertently, you, you have consciously to your client said, we think this is a $250,000 claim. Uh, we'd be darn lucky to get out of this claim for less than $225,000. Okay, so what's the obligation of the unintended recipient now? And now I get it. Uh, it, it used to be that we simply said, well, you know, wait a minute, this is, I, I shouldn't have this. I'm, I'm going to divert my eyes. You know, I'm not going to even look at it. I'm, I'm certainly going to touch base uh, with Alan and say, Alan, you know, you must have been inadvertently sent. Obviously, this wasn't meant for me. Um, the, um, the current provision indicates that all I have to do is simply notify you that I have received it. But it doesn't say, and it still doesn't indicate, whether, if say it's in letter form, whether I have to notify you, or send it back to you, or whether I can copy it, or whether I can tell my own client. Now, in a, in a much more difficult situation, the rules do not indicate whether you have to tell your client that the other side now has that information. And this happens both ways. Um, this happens on my side from time to time. That's fascinating, Tom. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more we could get into on this. Right now, we're going to take a short break and come back with more from our special guest, Tom Domer from Milwaukee, and we'll talk about our Case of the Day feature. We'll be right back. You can listen to Workers' Comp Matters anytime on your computer or download the show to listen later. We invite you to join as a member to Legal Talk Network so you can get updates on our upcoming Internet radio shows. Plaintiff Support Services was established in 1992 to assist personal injury claimants in need of financial support during the pendency of their cases. Here's Joe DiNardo, president and founder of Plaintiff Support Services, with a company message. Anybody who has practiced contingent fee PI work knows that plaintiffs during the course of the litigation come upon very hard financial times and make it difficult for you and for them to properly handle their case because they're struggling to meet the normal requirements of daily living and keeping food on the table for their family or a roof over their head. Plaintiff support provides non-recourse funding to a plaintiff while the case is pending. If the case is lost or for some reason resolved at a number that only allows attorney's fees and disbursements to be paid, plaintiff support receives nothing in return. If the case is successfully resolved, we receive our principal and return based on a daily rate. We've been around since 1992, and we'd like to think that we bring much more of service to your plaintiff and to your firm than just advancing money. Our staff has been specially trained to work with and counsel the plaintiff during the course of the litigation to help them budget their money and to keep them afloat 
and to keep them from getting in further difficulties financially. This takes the burden off of you and allows you to focus your attention where it needs to be, and that is on the litigation. For more information, please call 1-800-352-9676 or visit the website at www.plaintiffsupport.com. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, Attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guest on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. At the Legal Talk Network, we're pleased to tell you that it is our privilege to announce a series of programs with the legendary F. Lee Bailey, available soon for listening exclusively here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll hear F. Lee Bailey talk about the role of investigation and his brilliant defense strategy in cases such as the Boston Strangler, Dr. Sam Shepard, Patty Hearst, Captain Ernest Medina, and, of course, O.J. Simpson. You'll also hear F. Lee Bailey talk about several lesser-known trials, personal anecdotes, and his thoughts about trial lawyers as the gatekeepers of the truth in the American justice system. It's called Conversations with F. Lee Bailey, the essence of investigation. You won't want to miss this. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, the show where we talk about the issues that matter in workers' comp cases. Today we're going to start a feature called Case of the Day, and today's case is from the Tennessee Supreme Court. It's a case of Blankenship versus American Ordnance Systems. Gaitha Blankenship worked for the American Ordnance Systems assembling bullets, and she was laid off due to a lack of work. While on layoff, she became aware that her employer was providing free medical evaluations of upper body strength to find employees for new jobs with lifting requirements. Well, Gaitha took the test and hurt her back. She applied for workers' compensation benefits, arguing that her employer paid for the test, the test was on company uh, premises, and the test was only available to employees and not the general public. Furthermore, Gaither argued her employer benefited by identifying a pool of prospective employees capable of performing these new jobs. The case made its way to the Tennessee Supreme Court. Tom, what do you think? Should Gaither get her workers' comp? Yes. (laughs) And I... Um, there are uh, several cases along along these lines, um, and uh, where a pre-employment uh, test or a pre-employment physical um, may uh, the results of that or an injury that occurs during the course of that will be found to um, to constitute the uh, employer-employee relationship, even though there hasn't been any paycheck yet involved. A couple of the things that she's argued have been those things that have been successfully argued in case cases before, um, and those are certainly that the employer uh, benefits from uh, from the uh, from the testing, and has made it a uh, prerequisite for her uh, obtaining the job. The fact, uh, as I understand it, the fact that Blankenship was already an employee but on layoff, and um, this is also um, uh, it, this was also a, an employment with again with Blankenship um, would likely make that uh, a compensable issue. Well, we don't have a buzzer, but Tom, you're wrong. The Supreme Court of Tennessee upheld the denial of workers' compensation benefits. Um, they did draw a distinction, as you mentioned, between the pre-employment physical and this situation, 
and they felt that Gaither's injury did not arise out of or in the course of her employment. She was not compelled to take the test, nor was passing a test a condition of getting her old job back. So they denied benefits, but I would agree with you that probably in Massachusetts, Gaither would have prevailed, and one of the challenges of workers' compensation is that while the general precepts and um, uh, underlying principles of workers' comp remain constant across the country, we have 50 states and other jurisdictions and other federal uh, uh, systems of benefits, and you can get conflicting results. Um, That's why we maintain (laughs) contact with uh, colleagues in, in other states and why I'm happy to practice in Wisconsin. That would not have been the result in Wisconsin. And I don't think it would be the result here, but that is the state of the law right now in Tennessee. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with a special guest, Helen Jones. with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. Plaintiff Support Services was established in 1992 to assist personal injury claimants in need of financial support during the pendency of their cases. Here's Joe DiNardo, president and founder of Plaintiff Support Services, with a company message. Anybody who has practiced contingent fee PI work knows that plaintiffs during the course of the litigation come upon very hard financial times and make it difficult for you and for them to properly handle their case because they're struggling to meet the normal requirements of daily living and keeping food on the table for their family or a roof over their head. Plaintiff support provides non-recourse funding to a plaintiff while the case is pending. If the case is lost or for some reason resolved at a number that only allows attorney's fees and disbursements to be paid, plaintiff support receives nothing in return. If the case is successfully resolved, we receive our principal and return based on a daily rate. We've been around since 1992, and we'd like to think that we bring much more of service to your plaintiff and to your firm than just advancing money. Our staff has been specially trained to work with and counsel the plaintiff during the course of the litigation to help them budget their money and to keep them afloat and to keep them from getting in further difficulties financially. This takes the burden off of you and allows you to focus your attention where it needs to be, and that is on the litigation. For more information, please call 1-800-352-9676 or visit the website at www.plaintiffsupport.com. This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce the only Legal Talk Network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome back to the Legal Talk Network. I'm attorney Alan Pierce, and I'd like to introduce a special guest today from Plaintiff Support Services. Helen Jones, Executive Vice President, Underwriter for Plaintiff Support Services, has extensive experience in all areas of personal injury case management. Helen, welcome to the show today. Tell us a little bit about Plaintiff Support Services. 
Plaintiff Support Services provides non-recourse funding to plaintiffs during their personal injury litigation. If, for whatever reason, there isn't any recovery on their personal injury action, they would not owe anything back to Plaintiff Support Services. We also are able to provide funding on workers' compensation cases where the Plaintiff's Council receives all the settlement funds um, and disperses them from their escrow account. Okay. Are there rules about how lawyers have these support services structured? Uh, can you fill us a little, in a little on the rules and regulations? Well, um, in New York State, the uh, Attorney General, Elliot Spitzer, has entered into an agreement with um, all of the non-recourse funding. Several There's like nine personal injury or the non-recourse funding entities, and this particular agreement allows non-recourse funding for the plaintiffs during their personal injury action, provided they put in plain language what their terms are, what the agreement is, and what the monies that will be owed and what they will look like at the end of the case. And um, we are actually, there are several states that also have comply, you know, we comply with their rules. Right now there is no other attorney general agreement throughout the nation, but we are working towards um, making that happen. There's the American Legal Finance Association that has been um, started as of last year, and that is their goal to make sure that we comply with all the rules and re- regulations of each state. Thank you, Helen. And how can uh, people reach your company? Um, you can contact us at 1-800-352-9676, or you can go onto the web at www.plaintiffsupport.com, and you can submit an application right online. Great. Thanks, Helen. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now I want to get some closing thoughts from Attorney Tom Domer of Milwaukee on our topic of discussion today, ethical considerations in workers' comp cases. Tom, anything you'd like to close with to sum up? Well, real simply, some of the most significant complaints that most uh, consumers have, most uh, workers have, uh, are the issues of diligence um, and, and timeliness. And uh, most of us are busy. Uh, those folks that uh, that do a substantial okay. workers' comp practice know that it, it requires a volume practice. Um, but the number one complaints that uh, consumers have um, is the lawyer never returns a phone call. And the, the new rules are, are specific on that. If you're not able to return a telephone call, uh, make sure that somebody in the office can and does and, and will indicate to the caller your client when that call is going to take place, and when you will be available for a, for a consult. Um, we're all busy, but uh, um, the notion of uh, being able to uh, competently and diligently uh, advocate on behalf of an injured worker um, is um, one of the ethical requirements we have. Great. And very quickly, before we run out of time, are there circumstances where an attorney can or cannot contact uh, a representative of the employer in the investigation of the claim? Uh, if the, um, if the um, employer representative is a supervisor um, and or regularly consults with the, the uh, company attorney, um, then there should be then there's a prohibition on somebody on the injured workers side uh, contacting um, that individual um, yeah, a little more routinely we um, and that's because the company is represented by counsel and you can't contact somebody um, 
that is represented by counsel. What about a co-employee who may have been a witness to the accident? A co-employee is fair game. If that employer, if that employee doesn't quote supervise, direct, or regularly consult with the organization's lawyer, and uh, so those co-employees are probably the most valuable witnesses. Now, sometimes, obviously, uh, there are threats, uh, implicit or explicit, uh, that uh, that would uh, tend to, you know, chill the response to that co-employee in terms of being a supportive witness. Um, sometimes the best witnesses are those folks who have been separated from employment, and uh, they, uh, they become good cannon fodder for, the, um, for that hearing. And does this go uh, also for the company nurse or uh, medical providers within the company? Are there company nurse uh, and or medical company nurse would, uh, would certainly be somebody that would be in a, in a position to uh, to supervise or regularly consult with the organization's lawyer, so probably would be off limits um, without the uh, express consent of the uh, of the company counsel. So, uh, do you have to resort to depositions or interrogatories? Do you have well, any type of discovery out there that that can... again varies varies state by state? Um, you can make make requests, but uh, unless that person is unavailable um, or um, then uh, deposition is routinely not uh, one of the vehicles we have here in Wisconsin. It's simply uh, subpoena to the hearing and uh, and then quote trial by surprise. Really, that makes it that makes it a little bit a, a little bit more difficult. Um, but in terms of the um, uh, if that witness is unavailable, then the uh, then the counsel arrange for um, for a deposition either before or after the uh, the hearing date in order to obtain that that testimony. And the same would be true for a uh, quote company physician uh, in that same in that same position. Tom, I want to thank you very much for being the first guest on Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. I want to thank everybody for listening today to Workers' Comp Matters. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, Alan. Take care. Today's show, Workers' Comp Matters, was sponsored by Plaintiff Support Services, providing financial services for plaintiffs, the gold standard in plaintiff funding. You can contact Plaintiff Support Services at 800-352-9676 or visit the website at plaintiffsupport.com. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matter shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.